In the following live session recording, Brian Alexander, state missionary with Church Minister Relations and the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, will talk about dynamic deacons. This session will help deacons see the spiritual importance of their role and raise the level of expectation in the deacon's ministry. The listener will learn innovative ways to encourage deacons through connecting with the congregation and church leadership. Let's join Brian now. Well, guys, um, most of what I learned, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, I learned in 30 years in the pastorate, not just, uh, I didn't read what you're going to see on the book. Uh, I, just, I just learned from dealing with deacons. The first, my first church, uh, I pastored five and a half years, and my second church was uh, 20 plus years there. And uh, I worked with a lot of great deacons. Now, guys, my what I learned in the area of deacons, uh, I, my dad was a Baptist preacher. His best friends my whole life was deacons and pastors. That's who were always at our house and their families. And so when we grew up, there wasn't deacon jokes. There wasn't, there wasn't negative deacon jokes around our house because my daddy was serious about those deacons. He loved them guys. Those were, those were his best friends in the church. And so there was a... Uh, there was a really a strong bond between him and uh, I've shared this everywhere I've gone. If you've heard it before, that'll be all right. My my first recollection of, of deacons when I was six years old, it was supper time one night and my mom was, she's the type that always makes a lot of racket in the kitchen and you know she's, my daddy wanted supper at six o'clock every night. So mama, we, we like that too. Well, mama was in the, in the kitchen, her and daddy that night. And it was six o'clock, well after six, and, I didn't hear any racket going on. I was just a little boy. I remember going in there, looking in there, and I saw my mama and daddy standing in there in front of the kitchen sink. And my mother looked at my daddy and said, Billy, and I could tell there was some tension in her voice. She said, Billy, what am I going to feed these little boys? And I saw her lips start quivering. She said, Billy, I can't go over there to that bread box and open up and get a loaf of bread out and make those boys some toast tonight. She said, I can't go over there and make a, a, a pan of biscuits tonight. These boys, she said, they're going to bed hungry tonight. She said, Billy, what are we going to do? And for the first time in my first six years of my life, I saw weakness in my dad. He looked there and he said, honey, we're going to do what we've always done. We're going to pray. So they took hands and they went down on their knees and they started praying. And I watched my mama pray. She agonized with God. She asked God to forgive her for things she never even thought of. But she didn't want to risk anything between her and her Savior. She wanted to make sure. And she prayed. And I remember watching her cry and weep. And finally she got through. And I always say this as a caveat. That I've got to believe that while my mama was praying, Daddy got his life right with God while she was praying. Okay? Because when he started praying, he didn't say, Lord God, forgive me for this. Lord, I know I failed you in that area. Lord, I've been so weak. He didn't, he didn't pray. He wasn't going that route at all. So, so I've got to believe he cleaned up his life while Mama's praying. Now, when he gets started, he says, Lord, he said, I don't know why we're in this shape, but I do know this. Your word says that your righteous won't be forsaken and your seed begging bread. And he said, God, all I've got to hang on to right now is your precious word. I've spent my life studying that word, God, and I believe it's true. He said, Lord, you told the children of Israel, Lord, if they would be obedient, that they would prosper in the land. He said, God, we've done this. Our best to try to be obedient to you. He said, God, I need you right now. He said, you said you would never leave us nor forsake us. He said, God, I'm claiming that promise. Now, as soon as he said that, 
I'm standing halfway of the house. I run the front door and I open it up. There stands three ladies and three men standing out there. My dad walks up behind, flips on that little light, looks out there and says, what's this all about? Those three ladies and those three men, all three of them had two bags of groceries in their hand. One of them Baptist women said, Brother Bill, this morning in my quiet time, I said, God, I don't want to live a mediocre Christian life anymore. And I'm not coming out of this prayer closet until, God, I hear you speak to me because I want to make a difference. And she said, Brother Bill, I stayed there till I heard from God. And she said, all I heard God say in my spirit is we need to do something for the preacher and his family. She said, I didn't know what to do. So she called out my husband at work said, Honey, I need to talk to you. I just come out of my prayer closet. And God said, we need to do something for the preacher. He said, I don't have time to talk about that. I'll call you at lunch. She said, don't hang up. Don't hang up. I need to talk to you. He said, honey, I don't have time. She said, if you hang up on me, don't come home. <laughs> oh, that, that's what this gal said to her. And so he said, well, what is... She said, we have got to do something for the preacher and his family. He said, well, he got smart with her. He said, well, he was talking to you. What did he tell you you ought to do? She said, he told me to call you. <laughs> so in his exasperation, he just said, well, I'll tell you what. They got them four little old boys. They always need something to eat. Y'all just go, let's have an old-fashioned pounding. Let's go get a pound of uh, flour and a pound of butter and a pound of milk and a pound of this. Let's just go buy them some groceries. They always will need something to eat, so we'll carry them over there tonight. I've got to go. And he hung, hangs up on them. So she calls the other deacon's wives. They go out and they go shopping. They come back in that night. And I remember them watching in as they walk in and they're carrying those bags of groceries till they had put them all over the kitchen table, then on the kitchen cabinets. Every every open spot had a bag of groceries in it. And you know what? I was thinking about 10 minutes earlier we was going to die of starvation. Now we're going to die of gluttony. <laughs> what a way to go, you know. And so, man, as soon as they got that last bag sit down, I remember Daddy saying, come here. Boy, they gathered around that kitchen table and they grabbed hands. They didn't really, they thought they had just, that a prayer meeting was started. They didn't realize they were coming. They were interrupting a prayer meeting to see the hand of God reveal himself. And man, when my daddy started praying, man, he got sideways in there. Man, he got praying. He said, oh, God, what a, what a mighty God we serve. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Well, he got, he got sideways. He got to shouting it out. Well, one of the deacons next to him said, I'm starting to feel something, preacher, while he's praying. I'm starting to feel something. Well, they, man, they prayed heaven down right there. Right? Mm -hmm. Man, he went from a prayer of agonizing with God to a prayer of thanksgiving. Man, I remember those deacons grabbing daddy and hugging him. And I remember them daddy walking out of the car with them. They got out there. They didn't have any idea what was going on. They didn't know there wasn't a crumb in that house for us to eat. But I'll tell you what, as a little boy, I laid down that night in my bed the first time I ever thought of anything or any really true relationship with God. I heard God speak to my spirit and he said, son, while your mom and daddy was in there praying, I had already answered their prayer. Mm -hmm. And then I heard these words, and it still rings in my heart as a little boy, you'll be a fool. Mm -hmm. Now, boys, that's, what, that's the first thing I saw with deacons. You know what? Deacon ministry is servant ministry. Anything other than servant ministry, deacons are moving into maybe some places that God didn't really call them to. And so we're gonna we're gonna look at some of those things. What does it mean to be a dynamic dynamic deacon? I'm just gonna I'm gonna cover some things uh, today. 
one of the things about diligent in his duties. Now, when a deacon's called, when he's called and he's ordained, you know what? There's some duties that go along with being a deacon. Now, some of the duties is, and I'm talking about attendance requirement. Now, isn't this, isn't this silly for me to be talking about that? But you know what? I go to churches all over. I go, I go to churches all over the state, and I tell you what, I have, and we go, we've gone in, Marty and I have to do conflict mediation, and one of the things that we hear so many times is we've got the leaders, we've got deacons in our church, they don't come, to, they just come on Sunday morning. They don't come to Sunday school, they don't come to visitation. And the thing is, the deacons don't realize there's people sitting out there with a little old pad and they're taking a roll of who's there and who's not. And bless God, who died and put them in charge. But anyway, I'm just, I'm just telling you. People are looking because, listen, deacon, the role of a deacon is a spiritual role. It's a servant role, but it's a spiritual role. And those who look at deacons, they're expecting some spiritual example and leadership from them. And you know, the most basic thing is, is Sunday school. I've had deacons tell me, I don't do Sunday school. I don't do Sunday school. I found out generally if they didn't do Sunday school, a lot of other things they didn't do. I didn't say they wasn't a good deacon, but I'm just telling you. You know, Sunday school is where is where you build relationships. It's where you strengthen them and where where you learn and also where you share. And then Sunday evening service, Wednesday night prayer service, deacons meeting. You know, you know, in our bylaws, it stated that if a, if a deacon wasn't going to make it to a deacon's meeting, he didn't have an excuse that. <coughs> And if he had, I think it was two, if he had two or three, say an unexcused absence and then two other absences, well, he, he lost his seat of the bit And he knew that going in. It wasn't just, you know, he knew that. said, man, if I can't come, I'm, I'm not going to be. Let me ask you, how many of y'all known through the year? I'm not talking about right now. But have you ever known somebody who was serving as a deacon didn't have any business serving as a deacon? Yeah. We, we all do. And we're going to talk about that before <laughs> the end, too. But I'm just talking about, you know, that's one of the things. When you when you have guys who are elected as, as deacons, they need to know there's some expectations. You know, there's some expectations on you. And, and you're serving God. And, you know, this that's what really what the deacon ministry about is how you're serving God in this area of serving ministry. How are you going to serve the people of that church? How are you going to minister to and through the pastor? How are you going to help the, the church and the community? You know, those are areas. That's what this is about. It's not about buildings and budgets and all of that. Now, I have made some folks mad by... <laughs> I know y'all can't believe that. I know you can. I know it's just shocking you to death. I had a fellow in a, I went and did a deacon's uh, meeting, uh, training, and uh, after it was over, he asked me to stay. He wanted to talk to me. After it was over, he said, uh, Brother Brian, how do you think his deacon retreat went tonight? I said, I don't think it went well at all. He said, really? I said, no, it, it didn't go well at all. He said, what was wrong? I said, it went right over the heads of everybody in here. There's 17 deacons in there, and they could care less about what I was talking about, servant ministry. They couldn't care less. Well, I went ahead and did my thing. I got through, and his old he asked me, could he stay? You know, we, we sat there, and he said, he said, Brother Brian, I don't really appreciate you telling us tonight for an hour and 15 minutes that everything we're doing is wrong. I said, I don't even know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. All I did was give you a biblical role, a biblical uh, example of what deacon leadership really is, 
And I said, I didn't tell you what you was doing wrong. I don't even know what you're doing. Well, he looked at me and said, well, let me ask you this, brother. He, he, he's, he, he's almost sideways now. He said, brother, if the building's going to get a new roof on it, who's going to do it if the deacons don't do it? If the building needs painting, if it needs carpet, if the plumbing needs it, if these things need to get done, who's going to do it if the deacons don't? I asked him, I said, y'all have a building grounds committee? He said, we sure do. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, I said, you do? He said, we sure do. I said, well, let me tell you the first thing you need to do is fire everybody on that committee. Well, that really wasn't a great thing to say. <laughs> I said, you need, well, you need to go ahead and fire, you need to go ahead and fire, that, fire that committee. And he said, why would we do that? I said, because they're not trustworthy enough to do their job. And I said, now I'll tell you what else, while you're at it, the chairman of that committee, you need to fire him as well. And he said, well, we couldn't do that. I said, why? I said, uh-oh, why? Is he a deacon? He said, yeah, he's a deacon. I said, not only do you need to fire him as chairman of that committee, you need to revoke his ordination papers because he's not trustworthy to be a deacon. Well, needless to say, that wasn't any better than the prior thing. <laughs> but anyway, we uh, he took that, and we walked out. He, we had my gear, and he walked out. He walked me out to my truck. He put my stuff in the back seat of my truck. He thanked me for coming. He said, I'm going to be thinking about what you had to say. And then he did something kind of strange. He hugged my neck. We had been kind of in conflict, but he hugged my neck. You know what? That church had been in major conflict. Our team had been out there. We had done all kinds of conflict mediation. It was in great trouble. And uh, about four weeks later, about a month later, I get a phone call from the, from the pastor. And the pastor, he asked me, he said, Brother Brian, I want to ask you, how do you think that deacon, uh, deacon retreat went that you did for us here? I said, I didn't think it went that way. He said, really? I said, no, sir, it didn't. It, he said, why do you think that? I said, well, because the guys in there wasn't interested in what I had to say. He said, who wasn't? I said, the number one person who wasn't interested was you. He said, could you clarify why you would say that? I said, yes, sir. I said, you sat there for an hour and 15 minutes with a look on your face. I knew either one or two things was going to happen. Either you were getting ready to leave that church and nobody knew it but you, or you didn't care what those deacons had to say and that you was going to do just what you wanted to and plow right around them. I said, it was one of the two. And he said, you're exactly right. He said, it was number two. I had been played out with them and I didn't care what they said. I was going to do what I wanted to do to know to make sure this church was going to grow. He said, well, let me tell you what happened. He said, uh, our next, our last deacon meeting we had, he said, the chairman came in and said, uh, how do y'all think the retreat went? And they said, the, the great big old toad that sat on the throne over there, he had his lips pooched out. He said, well, that guy from Atlanta, he might think that works up there, but it don't work over here where we're at. That's what he said. So the chairman said, well, guys, I've been here a long time now. And he said, our church is steadily declining. And we do not have a servant ministry deacon body at all. We are strictly a governing board. You know that, and I know that. And uh, he said, so here's what we're going to do. He said, I've, I've made a list of some of the things that Brother Brian talked about. And for the next year, while I'm the chairman, 
these are the things. This is how I want to do deacons meetings. This is how we want to do our, our deacons, the deacons meetings themselves. And this is the format. He laid all that out for them. And he asked them, would y'all be willing to do that? He said, before you answer, if you decide to do just like we've always done, I want you to know that I'm resigning tonight as a chairman of deacons and as a deacon. And me and my wife and family will be leaving the church and we will not return. That's, that's what the preacher told me. He said, that's what he said. And so he said, so the big guy sitting over there with his lips pooped out, he said, they looked over at him and said, brother, what about you? Because he'd already made his negative statement. He says, well, if we keep going like we're going right now, the church will be out of business in about 16 months. So he said, I reckon I'm, I'm willing to give a try if y'all. So they all agreed and voted. Pastor said, Brother Brian, he said, those guys started meeting once a week at 5.30 in the morning in a little coffee shop. They left there, and then wherever they went, the grocery store, they went to the feed store, the hardware store, those guys made a special effort to invite everybody they saw in their church. He said, it's a new day at our church. He said, Brother Brian, he said, since our, in the last month, he said, we've had over 23 visitors. We had not had 23 visitors in the last three years. He said, we've had 23 visitors. He said, I have baptized six of them. We've got four other families that are talking about coming. He said, revival is about to break, break out. He said, the conflict is over. Amen. And he said, it's all because the deacons got serious about serving. And so they got serious about their their responsibilities and their and their duties. And they started, they started going out on visitation. And they started encouraging others. And they started doing the things that deacons were supposed to do. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is not only diligent in their duties, but also dedicated to serve the people. You know, that's why deacons were established in the very beginning, to serve. You know, remember when the Grecian women were not being taken care of? And so they started complaining. They said, hey, man, this thing is, there's a prejudice factor here. How come y'all are taking care of all the Jewish women and, and we're not being taken care of? We're not being ministered to. So those apostles... They were wise enough and said, man, y'all get out these, pick out these men, men who are full of the Holy Ghost and of honest report. And man, he said, come, have them come and let them serve tables. It was about serving and ministering to the needs of those who were in need. That's what deacon ministry was set apart for. And so here, here's some ways that I kind of want to talk to you because, you know, you want some practical things that you can do in your deacon ministry to make it dynamic. One of the things I talk about is the 10-second prayer. Those of you who've been to my deacon trainings, you know you already know what the 10-second prayer is. How many of you don't know what a 10-second prayer is? Alright. 10-second prayer is every Sunday morning you're going to run into somebody and they're going to shake hands with you and ask you how you're doing. You're going to ask them how they're doing and they're going to say fine and all that kind of stuff. But you know, every now and then and almost every week you're going to have somebody tell you uh, I'm doing okay, but could you remember me this week, this Thursday, I'm going to be having a biopsy. Mm -hmm. Or my son mm -hmm. is in trouble. Mm -hmm. Would you pray for someone? Mm -hmm. Right then and right there, give them 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. And this was brought home to me uh, some time ago. I was, when I still lived in Douglasville, I drove all, I was, drove all the way to Rutledge, where I now live. My hometown, there was a church there in crisis, and I was in there helping and doing some conflict mediation there and also some 
preaching and some coaching and that kind of thing. And so I come in one morning and uh, I was greeting the people and uh, I met this one lady and uh, she said, uh, where did you come from today, Brother Alexander? I said, I came from Douglasville. She said, how far is that? I said, it's 77 miles from my my front porch to this church right here. She said, ooh, that's a long way. I said, yes, ma'am. I said, but just in a matter of a few weeks, I'm going to be living within two miles of this church. And uh, she said, really? And I said, yes. She said, well, I hope your house sells quicker than mine did. And I said, my house already sold. She said, how long did you have it on the market? I said, I didn't ever put it on the market. She said, I've had a house in Blue Ridge, Georgia, been on the market for two years, and I have not had one single call, not one. She said, how did you sell your house? I said, well, I said, my next door neighbor, I bought my house from him. He built him a big palatial place on the same farm there that he, he owned, and uh, so I bought his house from him. And uh, I told him I was getting tired of all that line of traffic about six, seven months ago, and I told him I was getting tired of it. I want to move back to my hometown. And I was going to be start hunting me a place. And so he just told me, he said, now if you ever, want to, you ever want to sell, he said, I want that house. It's on my farm, right in the middle of his farm. He said, I want that house back. And he said, I'll tell you what to do. He said, I'll give you fair market value. And he said, we won't be squabbling over it, fair market value. And he said, you give me 30 days, we'll have cash closing. I said, suit the fire out of me, man. We, we high-fived it. So I went to hunt me a house. I didn't think anything else about him. I just let that go. Because I knew he's a man of his word. I know it. And so I went hunted and hunted. Finally, about four or five months later, I was riding in his pasture, squirrel hunting. And uh, I come, he, was on his, uh, he was on his golf cart, and I come driving up on my four-wheeler, and I saw him. I said, hey, Brother Curtis. So we talked to him, and I said, man, I'm going to let you know. Uh, I'm, I'm getting close on the house. Matter of fact, I'm going to make an offer on, on that house this weekend. I said, you still interested in that, aren't you? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, you going to give me 30 days? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll give you 30 days. He said, well, I still want it. So I said, I'll have it appraised, and we'll, he said, okay, it's what we did. Well, man, 30 days, we closed, it was done. So I was telling this lady this in the church. And you know what? When she told me, well, I've had a house for two years and it hadn't, hadn't even had a single call, mm -hmm. I fell under conviction. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got sick to my stomach because mm -hmm. it almost sounded like I was bragging mm -hmm. about what God had done in my area. Here she was two years and I felt so sick about it. Finally, I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I said, let me tell you what, let me just have, let me have a prayer with you. And I said, dear God, I don't know why this lady's house hadn't sold, but I know one thing she needs to know. You know that it's still there. I pray you reveal yourself to her in this area. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. I said, amen. I went on about my business. Went on, shook hands with everybody, went on. Well, the next week, I was preaching in Chatsworth, Georgia, and then the following week, I was back there to help them again to fill in that week. When I come in the back door that day, Somebody said, um, asked me how I was doing. They said, have you talked to Miss Sally? And I said, no, I hadn't. I don't even know who Miss Sally was. And so I come in the back row. She turns around and sees me. The lady pops up. She said, Brother Brian. I said, hey, how are you? She said, do you remember me? I said, no, no, ma'am, I know. She said, well, I'm Sally. I said, well, she said, I'm the one with the house of Blue Ridge. And I said, oh, really? And I'm thinking, oh, Lord. She said, well, let me just tell you what happened. She said, that Sunday when you prayed for me, she said, when I got home from church, I had two messages on my answer machine from two different people. Both of them are trying, one of them is trying to get qualified, but the other one's, the second one is already qualified and said they're second on the on the on the list. 
but if the other one qualifies, they're going to buy it. She said, in essence, my house is sold. So I just grabbed her. Hey, man, Lord God, thank you. And I just praised him for revealing himself to her. And I went on. I got about halfway up to the church, and a lady popped up. She said, oh, Brother Brian, she said, have you talked to Miss Sally? I said, yeah, yeah, I did. She said, can you believe it? Man, you prayed for her and her household. I said, man, what a blessing, you know. Yeah, and I went on. I get up there. And I get almost to the front. A man pops out over and he said, Brother Brian, he said, man, Miss Sally was in my Sunday school class today. She said, man, she said, said, man, if anybody ever needed a prayer, I said, man, call Brian Alexander, man. He's a man. He got a direct line to have Now, that's what she told him. Well, I get up to the front row, and here comes the ministry of music. He comes down off the platform. He said, Brother Brian, he said, have you heard about Miss Sally? Oh, and I said, man, I, I have. I sure have. He said, man, you know what's happening? He said, she's been telling that for the last two weeks. Everybody in this place is praying with one another. They're praying with each other in the parking lot. They're praying with each other in the fellowship hall. She, he he said, man, there's a, a prayer has broke out like nobody. He said, it's a prayer revival taking place over that one 10-second prayer. Yeah. What will happen if the deacons start praying like that with the people? What it does, it raises the level of the spiritual weight of the deacon role when the men called deacons start praying with the people. It's one thing just to pray in a worship service over the offering or a dismissal prayer, but it's something else when you're praying for the specific needs of an individual when they've called on you to pray. Because nearly, I mean, every one of us has said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be, be sure to pray for you about that. And then we get home, we forget about it. Next thing we, we're reminded of is when we hear what, how their progress is. And he's like, oh, I forgot to pray. You know what on Facebook, people will put on there, man, we need prayers about something. You know what I do on there? I don't put praying and put praying hands on there. I don't, I don't do what I do. I, this morning at 2 o'clock in the morning, Brother Fred Evers, pastor down in uh, North, about off to wherever he's pastor. Tiffin, he's at Tiffin. Man, when I saw he was having that major surgery today, Man, I just thought, I said, Oh, Holy Master of Glory, how about that name? God, I'm asking you, Lord, I pray you'd let, let the effectual, fervent prayer of the soul right here ring and find out where the, I want to know that my delight, I'm delighting in you that I may have the desire of my heart. That's Brother Fred to be here. Two o'clock in the morning. I didn't want to miss that. I knew I was going to be busy today, but I didn't want to miss that prayer. Because he said the effectual fervent prayer of righteous men avails much. It counts. It means something. What will happen if you start praying for your people in the church and God starts answering those prayers like that? They're going to say, oh, bless God, man. That's the kind of man I want to be. That's the kind of deacon I want to be. And so, 10-second prayer. And then another one is a $100 club. Now, I know I've, for years and years I've never talked about that. When I'm saying years, I'm talking about 20, 20 plus years, I would never talk about this. But 25 years ago, I made up my mind. God laid it on my heart and said, yeah. And I told the Lord in a, in a meeting, I was at a pastor's conference, I told the Lord, I said, Lord, if you give me an extra $100 that I don't have earmarked for a car payment or for insurance or groceries, Lord, if you give me an extra $100, I don't, I'll keep it in my wallet and I won't give it to anybody. Except those people you get, tell me to give it to. So 25 plus years ago, I put a hundred, I tucked a hundred dollar bill away in my, my wallet, and I had to learn some lessons about that hundred dollar bill. 
because there were some times when I saw somebody who needed a $100 bill and I gave it to them. Now, when I saw somebody had a need for a $100 bill and I gave it to them, uh, let me just put this in simple terms. I kissed that one goodbye. Okay? I kissed that $100 bill goodbye. But every time God laid it on my heart to give it away, God always sent it back. And most of the time, it had friends with it. You understand? Had friends with it. Just in case, for instance, me and Brother Marty and Miss uh, and uh, Marcus Merritt was over in Leeds, Alabama. We was doing a staff retreat over there, and we stopped by the Waffle House coming home one day. And uh, we it was that morning, and a lady came over there. She was an African American lady, just sweet, and great big smile. And she came over and she said, uh, "I guess you guys want some coffee this morning." I said, "No, I never learned to drink that stuff." Uh, Brother Dr. Mary to have some, but I never did learn how to drink coffee. I said, but I sure could use some sweet tea. Now, this is what the lady said. She said, you want some sweet tea for breakfast? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, let me high-five you for Jesus on that sweet tea. She threw up her hands. We high-five for Jesus over some sweet tea. Well, as soon as I high-five her, God said, give it to her. So I reached my pocket, man, I pulled out that $100 bill. Dr. Mary, he seen me He's seen it being given away a lot of times in the last three years. And so he knew what was going on. He said, oh, Lord, the Lord's speaking to you again. I know, that's right. This girl's name was Nene, N-E-E, N-E-E. Nene comes back, and I said, Nene, you got a big day planned? She said, yes, sir. She said, for the first time in my life, I'm getting ready to go on a vacation. I've got two little boys. They've never been on a vacation in their life, and I hadn't either. We're going to Gulf Shores, Alabama. To our first vacation, and we are so excited today. And I said, "Well, Nene, I said God's laid it on my heart that I just want to help you a little bit." And I ha and I always want to turn that hundred dollar part down where you can't see it. I just you give that away. You don't you you don't want anybody to know. You just you just want to give it away and let God do His business with it. And so I I had it laid down where she took it in her hand, and I hope she just put it in her pocket, going about her business. But she didn't. She, she she turned and flipped it over. She saw that 100 on it. Well, the first thing she did, she she opened it up to make sure it wasn't a gospel tract. That told me something right then. She wanted to make sure I wasn't going to do some false advertising. She'd think I'm going to give her $100 and I wound up give her a gospel tract. The gospel tract might have been what she needed. She opened it up. She opened it up. She saw that it was real one on all bill. She folded it up. This is what she did. That's kind of funny. She said, uh, uh She said, okay, okay. So she starts talking to herself. I'm thinking, uh-oh, I don't know what we've got into now. <laughs> she said, okay, I, I, I'll do it. I'll do it. She said, and then she kind of faces the cooks right over there and the, the, whole, the whole Waffle House folks standing over there, Dr. Merritt's right over here. And she said, Lord, She's talking out loud. Lord, I told you this morning, Lord, that I needed $100. Oh, I needed $100 to make sure I could pay for that room down there. And said, Lord, I told you that no matter what, if you gave me that extra $100 bill, I was going to praise you and I was going to honor you. And I'm going to, Lord, I want to thank you. Hallelujah. Praise you. Thank you, Jesus. But now the cook's down there flipping sausage like, oh, man. You know, he, he, and then she's having her own little worship service there. You know what, Dr. Merritt and I, we, we left. Two months later, I decided we have to be back through there. We're going to work a motorcycle rally. 
and on our way back through, I said, let's stop and see what I said we can see Nene. Nene is no longer a, uh, a server. Now she's a cook. So I walked in. I thought that was her. Well, our waitress came by. I said, is that Nene? She said, yes, it is. I said, well, tell her whenever she gets a break in the next 15, 20 minutes, I, I'd like to talk to her. She said, that'd be fine. Well, she stayed busy, but finally uh, she got up. She started walking over. When she got halfway over there to me, she stopped. She smiled real big, and I just got up. I just got out, got up, walked over there to her. And uh, I said, Nene, she said, could you wait just a minute? She rushes back around over there up under the countertop. She pulls out a, her, her pocketbook. She pulls out her cell phone. She said, I want to show you something. So she goes through her photo album, and she opens it up. She showed me a picture, and it was her two little old boys, and both of them had an ice cream cone, and they was living in an ice cream cone. She flipped the next one. Two boys sitting on the balcony at their condo, and they was eating Cracker Jacks. I ain't seen anybody eat no Cracker Jacks in a hundred years. They was eating Cracker Jacks. And she said, I just want to, she showed me several pictures. She said, if you had let God speak to you, me and my boys couldn't have been on that trip. And she said, I, want, I thank God every day since. And she said, I want to thank you. And I want you to see what God did through that number of And I said, thank you. I wasn't overly impressed because I've seen God been doing it for the last 20 something years. It wasn't no big deal to me. I just think God allowed me to see it. You know what? Me and Dr. Mary got ready to walk out. She was over there cooking. And I heard her tell the cook beside her, she said, hey, that's him right there. That's him. And he turned and looked over his shoulder. When I heard him, heard her say, that's him, I turned around and said, Miss Nene, no, it's him. It's him. He's the one to touch a man's heart. He said, hey, you need to do something you're not normally accustomed to doing so that I might be, use you to be a blessing to him. That's him. But you know, God's speaking. God's been speaking to, to men, and He does that. And He speaks through deacon and servant ministry. How God can use giving, and giving is, is such a special way. You say, well, giving's not... For God so loved the world that He what? Gave. Gave. He proved how much He loved the world by what He gave. And there's ways that you can be effective in areas. You know, there's time God... You know it. Most of the time at your stage in life, you're a little further in the road than you was 20 years ago. Say amen. 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 $100 right now. And near what it used to be 20 years ago to us. Or 30 years or 40. You know what? A $100 bill ain't a lot of money to me anymore. But I'm going to tell you one thing. It's a lot to a person who don't have it. I gave it away at a McDonald's drive-thru one day. A lady said, "Would you like a Would you like a, a sausage McMuffin today?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I think I will." God said, "Give it to her." I pulled it out of my pocket. I pulled around there. A lady by the name of Valerie. And I said, "Miss Valerie, are you okay?" And she said, "No, sir. I'm sorry. I'm not. That's going to be three dollars, and you know." And I said, "Miss Valerie," I said. God's led me to share with you today. I said, can I? No, first thing I asked her, I said, is there anybody in your life right now you know of that's praying for you? And she said, no. Mm -hmm. I said, well, God wants me to pray for you right now. And I had a 10-second prayer with her right then. And then I reached and I handed her that $100 bill. I'm telling you what, 
the next time I came through there, what God had done in her life. You know what? God spoke to her in such a way she'd been outside of church, her family, all of them, even her mama and daddy. And this was this lady was in her 50s. She's got all her family back in church because God spoke to her in a drive-through window one morning. I didn't know what was going on with none of my bids. I didn't ask them. But I'm just telling you, you can say God bless you and you want God to bless some folks. But I'll tell you what, it's like telling the person God bless you and they're hungry. Man, go give them something to eat before they hear you. And so God will use that. That may be something in the area, you know, your, in your personal life and in your deacon ministry about how they might want to be open to the area of giving. Hospital visitation. You know, hospital visitation, that's serving. That's where you're going, people who are in need. And I know every deacon don't have, uh, I mean, some people say, man, hospitals just make me sick. Nursing homes, oh, I can't stand them. I hear people say that all the time. You know, and everybody's not equipped for all that kind of stuff. Guys, I'm telling you what, I've been in the hospital for 30 years of ministry. My did I watched my daddy do it all the there's been times when people come back out of surgery and they take a drink of sweet tea or a drink of water. They get so nauseated, I recognize it, grab a pan and sit there and hold it while they throw up in that thing while I'm holding it for. And I've had Deacon stand over it against the corner saying or against the wall saying, I believe I could have done that. <laughs> well buddy, I couldn't do it. It's not comfortable for anybody. But I'm going to tell you what, those people you minister to in that area, man, they don't ever forget that. That guy who threw up in that, while I was sitting there, he was so embarrassed about him, he never forgot it. So man, that guy right there cares. And that's what serving ministry is about. It's about caring. And then home visitation. You know, there's times when you need to go by and see somebody at home. Especially if they quit coming to church. They're not coming, you're not going to get to see them at church. Don't. You know, just because the doctors don't go to homes anymore don't mean deacons don't have to. Go go by and encourage them along the way. And then if you do deacon family ministry, uh, some, of, some of you probably involved, your church may be involved, some may not, but if your church has deacon family ministry where you divide off the, the entire congregation among the deacons, uh, we always, I had that in the churches I served, and most of our deacons had 21 to 23 families, which was nearly too many, but one thing they did every year, they had uh, on one given Sunday, that deacon would have all of those in his deacon family ministry plan would stay after church on Sunday morning for a luncheon. And then they would have a, he'd have a little prayer time and they'd have prayer requests and they would share and then they would they would pray together and they'd have, they'd have lunch and that's been a few minutes, you know, after that's over at Vista. And one of the things that we saw in that was that it drew, it drew that group together. They started praying for one another and they started call, putting stuff on their own little calling post. And they they become a, a another little church inside the church and they were ministering and caring for one another and it started throughout the entire church. All of our deacons started doing that. And guess what happened? Man, people understood what it really meant for them. If you were to ask the, the common person in your church, just what, did, what do you think? the job description of a deacon is. They say, well, take up our offer. <laughs> Pray in public. Go to deacons meetings. Make some recommendations in conferences. Or just to make the business decisions regarding the church. You'll hear all of that. Did you notice None of those things have to do anything with serving ministry. 
making sure that a roof is on the building, that's maintenance. It's not ministry. It's ministry if you go up and put that roof on by yourself. And you pay for it. That's ministry. That's ministry. Bless God, I'm doing this for Jesus. I mean. But other than that, just coordinate and make sure the work gets done. A general contractor can do that. Subcontractor can do that. But I'm talking about ministering to the needs of people. That's what deacon ministry is about. So luncheons to have deacon, deacon family to do that. And then uh, you say, well, we don't we don't do we don't do deacon family ministry. Well, why don't you deacons adopt a Sunday school class and do the same thing for them? And on Sunday mornings, you know, it'd be your responsibility if you adopt a Sunday school class that you go by and touch base with them and ask them how they're doing. Pray with that Sunday school class. Maybe attend that. Go to their go to their socials when they have them. Whatever it may be, that you have some some spiritual clout with them to know that, hey, that's just not a governing board sitting on the top. These are guys who actually care about us, about what we're doing, about the needs that our families have. So adopt a Sunday school class. Now, let me just, I'm going to just throw this in here about hospital visits. Um, this is just, everybody ought to know it, but a lot, a lot of don't. Before, always not before you enter a room. You allowed to get a surprise of your life. You just ease on it and look around the corner. You liable to see something you didn't want to see. And then show no shock at what you do see. You know, I had a senior adult lady one time. She fell off the porch and broke her hip. They did surgery and I come in the room. This is about the second day later. And she come in she said, Brother Brian, you ought to see this big old star. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Woo, glory, have mercy. You know, but I didn't, you know, just take it and go on. You know, they just, they can't have it. There's some folks who want to show you, but just don't act, don't act shocked and don't go too, too deep in it. And then uh, let the patient choose the, the course of the conversation till you get spiritual. Listen, I don't know how many times I've done it and others too. They go in and this person may be they really may be troubled with what's going on with their health. And we're talking about squirrel hunting, deer hunting, or golfing, or something like that, and they could care less. Let them kind of pick the conversation, the course of that conversation. If they want to talk about those things, get on in there with them. And then, and then sometimes total silence is appropriate. Some people can't stand silence. But you know, when you're in a hospital room, Sometimes it is it is needed. Let them work through whatever they're working through. And then don't be insulted by a patient's attitudes or words. If you walk in on somebody and they're hurting like nobody's business, and a nurse or somebody had just been ugly to them, and they're foul and they're angry, and they kind of want to take it out, you know what, they really don't care about seeing you at that point. And they lie, you know, instead of them saying, hey, I'm so glad to see you, they, hey, you know, if you walk out because you're insulted, you know, I took my time to go over there and they act like they was insulted that I came. Listen, you don't know what they just went through. So don't get insulted by that. And as a matter of fact, if they do you that way, call them the next day and just let them know, hey, man, I've been praying for you. I know you was having a tough day. And they'd say, nine times out of ten, man, I'm sorry, yesterday, right before you came in, the doctor came in and gave me some news I didn't want to hear or said something or did something. So don't be insulted. And then don't offer false optimism. And do not try to out-diagnose the doctor. It, it tickles me 
when a carpenter goes in there and he's trying to out diagnose the doctor. Yeah. Now, guys, I like I said, I, I've been doing, I've been going to hospitals my whole life. I mean, I can hear the symptoms that people got, and I can almost tell you what's wrong. I went to Africa, man. One day, somebody had a broken—I uh, mean, the skin was broke on their hand. I couldn't stand how it looked, and so in my backpack, I had some medical supplies. Before it was over, there was a line a hundred yards long. People standing in line for medical attention, and they're coming up saying, "I've got problems with my stomach," and they tell—and they're telling me every kind. You know what? I'm listening to them. One lady said, you know, I'm, I'm having these stomach, and I start hurting right here, and I, it just kills me, and she's going through all that through the entire... You know, and I asked her, I said, does this happen all day long, or does it happen at night when you lay down? She said, just when I lay down. She's got some reflux, you know, everybody... You, and so they're just easy. But you know what? In this modern society that we're in, don't go in, a, go in there and try to diagnose what a doctor says. So just, just move on. And then... If you know the doctor tells them they've got, they've only got four to six months to live, unless God tells you otherwise, don't off, don't don't get in that. So, well, it ain't gonna be that way, you know. Anybody, you don't, we don't ever know. So and so had that, you know. You can say all of those things, but you know, just be considerate, just love them. If they hate to hear, you hate to hear it too. I hate that. Don't you? I hate that. I'm so sorry you got that news, but we're going to trust God, whatever he is with him. We're going to trust him no matter what. If God tells you different and you know God tells you that, then you hang with him. Uh, I went into a room one time and a guy uh, talked to him and uh, he said uh, he was sick. I mean, he was bad sick. I had to go get a nurse and everything. Like that. Then I wound up fed him, had to feed him his lunch. And I was dressed in a suit. He didn't know who I was. And I, I didn't tell him. I just come in. I said, "Hey, brother Richard," and uh, or just called him Richard. And so we started talking. Well, after I got him some help, after I fed him lunch, he looked up at me. And he said, uh, "Sir, I didn't catch your name." He said, "Are you a doctor?" And I said, "No, I'm not a doctor." I said, uh, "I'm a Baptist preacher." Well, his whole countenance changed. He got sour, and he said, "You're a preacher?" I said, "That's right." He said, "Well, let me just tell you something. I appreciate what you did, but you know what? If all you want to talk about here today is God and about church." or the Bible or anything like it, the best thing you do is get out of here right now. I don't want to hear nothing about any of that. And I said, well, I, I, I'm sorry. I said, man, why would you be so offended that I'm just a preacher? I hadn't said one spiritual thing to you. And he said, well, I want you to know one thing. He said, I don't want you talking about somebody that I hate. He said, I hate God. And I said, you hate God? He said, I sure do gritted his teeth. I mean, he, he got angry then. And I said, well, then I started laughing at him. Now, I'm going to tell you, that probably wasn't the best thing to do either. I started laughing. I said, man, you got to be kidding me. He said, don't laugh at me. I hate God. I said, man, you don't hate God. He said, how do you know I don't hate God? I do. He said, I hate the God that my wife brought into our house 30 plus years ago. I said, you can't. You don't hate God. You don't even know God. I said, sir, you wouldn't know God if you met him in a plane closet. I said, Tell me about your wife. He said, she's a Jehovah Witness. And the God that she brought into our house 30 years ago has almost wrecked our home. I said, brother, I, I'm not here to talk to you about the God that they claim to serve. I said, to be honest with you, uh, in layman's term, your wife falling on a duck. And I said, that, that's, they quacking. I said, let me give you the truth. And I shared with him the simple plan of salvation. 
about what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary and paid for the sins of the world and paid for His. And I said, man, that's what Jesus, that's why, that's why we serve Him. How could you hate a man who would give His life? God Almighty would take, take, give His life for you. Take your sins on Him. He said, He did that for me. I said, He sure did. He said, I have never heard that about Jesus. I said, that is the truth. That's why I serve him, because I can't get over the fact that he did that for me. I said, Brother Richard, wouldn't you want to give your heart and life to him? He said, I believe I would. So there laying in that bed, he prays to receive the Lord Jesus. So man, we're talking, we're excited. I mean, he's excited. He said, man, I never dreamed that a relationship with God was like this. And so he was, about that time, the door opens, here come walks in this great big huge guy. And uh, he said, this is my son, Rick. He had a beard make Duck Dynasty look like a 10-year-old. <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, his head would go in a five-gallon bucket. He was a monk. <laughs> he was huge. I mean, now, listen, I weighed over 400 pounds. I'm no big. I'm no big. I was over 400 pounds at that time. And so he went over there, and he didn't... He didn't sit in the chair. He just kind of sat on it, you know. He <laughs> sat on it over there. And, uh, and uh, so we were talking a little bit, and, and uh, finally he said, uh, his son Rick said, Sir, are you a doctor? I said, No, sir. Uh, I'm a Baptist preacher. He said, You've got to be kidding. I said, No. He said, Daddy, you letting a Baptist preacher stay in here? He said, I sure am. He said, man, it's the word you let them cuss him out, run him out, give him your you hate God speech and how you hate church and the Bible and you hate anything religious. How come you hadn't told him all of that? I said, he did. <laughs> he said, how did he let you stay in here? I said, Brother Richard, you want to tell him? He said, son, I just gave my heart life to Jesus. Amen. He said, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, he couldn't believe it. His son could not believe it. He said, I'm just, I'm just flabbergasted, Dad. He said, Brother Brian, would you tell my boy what you just told me? I said, I will. I shared with him the same, same simple plan of salvation. When I got through, I said, that's what your dad did. He just gave his heart and life to Christ because he believes what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary and his glorious resurrection that he has eternal life if he don't trust him. I said, wouldn't you want to trust him too? He said, looked over his daddy. He said, Mama didn't ever tell us anything. Mm-hmm. I said, Rick, wouldn't you want to give your heart and life to Christ? He said, I sure would. It took me and the daddy both to get him out of that bed, but we got him out of the chair. But we got him out. He got on his knees, and he prayed to receive the Lord Jesus. Three weeks later, me and three other people baptized him. And, uh, you know, as soon as he got through praying, the door opened. In walked a man had a white coat on. I don't remember what his name was, but I remember what it said, Oncology. And he said, uh, "Brother, he said, Mr. Richard, he said, uh, can I talk to you? He said, I got the results back of your test. He said, would, uh, he said, who are these gentlemen? He said, well, that's my son right there. And he said, that's my preacher. He hated him. He hated him 30 minutes ago. Now I am one. So I'm cracking up over that. But then he said, uh, uh, he said, if you don't mind, he said, can they hear? He said, oh, yeah, just say anything you want to in front of him. He said, he said, well, Mr. Richard, you got stage four colon cancer. It's metastasized in other parts of your body. He said, uh, you might have six months, because it's probably going to be two to three months. And he said, uh, we're going to try to, we'll do whatever we can to keep you comfortable. But he said, uh, there's not anything we're going to be able to do. He should have said, we went from a spiritual mountaintop now, almost in the valley of despair. When he walked out, he looked at me and he said, 
preacher, he said, what do you got to say about that news? I said, well, I'm going to tell you one thing. If he's right, one thing about it, you're more ready to meet God now than you ever was. I said, man, if you die right now, I said, you're going to meet the Lord Jesus because you have placed your faith and trust in him. And I just shared with him about about the confidence that you have. And that no man can pluck a man out of God's hand. And man, when he got through, he said, well, that, that don't sound so bad there. I had prayer with him again, walked out halfway down the hallway to the elevator. I felt God tell me in my spirit, go back in there and tell him he ain't going to be dead in six months. Now, I hate to tell you what I told God, but I told God, now that's above my pay grade there now. Yeah. <laughs> I said, Lord, you you better, you going to tell him that one now. I, 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 so I got on the elevator and I just told God no. I went down to the bottom floor of Cobb General Hospital. I remember walking out where all those, the waiting room, the couches were, and the great big plate glass windows out and all through there. And I felt so sick. Finally, I said, well, I'm going to just sit down. I'm going to sit down and think about this a minute because I was thinking, you know, the way I'm feeling, it might be what I had for lunch. Maybe that'll pass here in a minute or two. I, I didn't know. So I sat down over there, but I was so traumatized over it. And finally, I said, Lord, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll go tell him. I said, Lord, I don't know if I've got enough faith. I said, Lord, what if he dies? God said, that's my business. Mm -hmm. Psalm 68, verse 20 said, the issue of life and death belong to God. That's his business. But I know what I felt in my spirit. So I went back up, went down the hallway, went in his room, walked in. He looked up. He said, Preacher, you forget something? I said, yeah, I want to tell you something. He said, what's that? I said, I believe the Lord wants me to tell you you're not going to be dead in six months. He said, really? I said, yeah. I said, uh, all I know, that's just how I feel, and I believe God laid it on my heart, and I want to tell you that. He looked over at his son, and he said, well, I'll tell you one thing. I like his prognosis a whole lot better than the doctor. He said, I'm going with him. And so he said, thank you, preacher. Man, let's pray. And I prayed again. And I, this time I prayed I prayed with confidence. And man, he, he wasn't going to have that. Six months to the day, I got a phone call. I was in my office. Didn't have caller ID. I got a call. And when I answered it, I didn't know who it was, but I could hear what was going on in the background. If you're ever in a place of business, that they're doing what they're doing. You know what it is. You you hear the sound and you know where they're at. And I heard these words. Uh, Preacher Brian, I said, yes, sir. He said, this is Brother Richard. I said, well, hello, Richard. And I said, man, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm just wanting to tell you. It's six months to the day and I ain't dead. He said, as a matter of fact, I just bowled a 200. And he said, I'm getting ready. To, he said, I believe I'm fixing to break my all-time record in the next year. I just want to let you know God's good and God's kept his word. And I'm thankful he saved my soul. God bless you, preacher, and I'll talk to you later. And we hung up. That joker lived four more years and he died of something other than cancer. God's back his business. But when it comes to hospital visitation, you better make sure you you heard from God before you do that, okay? Because it troubled me. I, I wasn't thrilled about it. And then make your visits brief and share some comforting scripture and pray. Carry a little New Testament with you or your, your phone or whatever. But before you leave a, a hospital room, read a verse of scripture. Read Psalm 46 verse 1. Or read Psalm 23. Or, or read something that would, a psalm that would be a blessing to them. And then have a prayer with them. They'll always remember you sharing God's word with them. They not, may not remember your conversation, but they will remember you. They came in and read the word to me. So that's about hospital visit. And then, also not only diligent in your in your duties and dedicated to serve the people, but also devoted to the pastor. 
The Bible said in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, for we are laborers together with God. So we are, we're laborers and we're, we're co-laborers. And you know what? It is, it's our responsibility, it's your responsibility as a deacon to serve alongside the pastor and to, to serve and to minister to and through to make sure that the people's needs are met, the community's needs. Now, the reason we say support your pastor because 97% of pastors have been betrayed, falsely accused, or hurt by trusted friends. That's true, boys. I'm telling you. I deal with it every single day. I know I know that that stat's true. 70% of pastors battle depression. 80% feel discouraged. As I said earlier, I'm coaching guys who are in their late 20s all the way to their late 70s. And every one of them tell almost the same story. It's just different places, different people, but they're telling. And they're all, they're, they never can get outside of the pressure that's under them. And so that's one of the things that deacons can do to help to make sure, to help alleviate some of those areas of service to help with the people. 7,000 church across America close every year. 1,500 pastors quit each month across America. Right now in the state of Georgia, we have almost 400 churches. Out of our 3,600 churches, we have almost 400 churches without pastors right now. And that is, if we had 250 hire new preachers in the next month, the very following month, we're going to have nearly 400 that's going to be without pastors again. It just works that way. 10% of our churches are almost always without a pastor. So, if they're quitting that month, that much each month, that tells you they're under a lot of strain, a lot of stress. And so, that's why you need to be uh, pay close attention to it. 10% will retire as a pastor. 10% of those that were called will retire a pastor. 94% of pastors' families feel pressure of the ministry. 78% of pastors have no close friends and can be ridiculed if they do in the church. You know what? That's one of the things I did in the 30 years I pastored. You know, I had to be careful about who. I mean, I always, a preacher's got to have a good friend in the church. He's got to have at least one. He don't have to have... 50 or 20 or 10 or 5. But he needs one. And so, but you know what? Pastors know that they're going to have to pay a price if they have a, if they have a good friend in the church. Because others will see them going out to eat or going on vacations together or doing this together or families doing this together. And before long, that becomes an area of ridicule. Well, you know, you can't get anything out of the preacher unless you're in his little old clique. See? All that stuff goes on. So make sure your pastor, make sure. I mean, pay attention to those kind of things because he needs friends. Be friendly to him. And you know, you're not going to, you know, he really can't, he don't have time for close personal relationships with everybody in the church. Pastor don't have time for that. It takes time to build those kind of relationships. So, stay devoted to him. And then, Here's a pastor's in trouble list. This is how I knew when I was in trouble. This list come out of my life, not off some of the pages of some book. This is how you can know that your pastor may be in emotional trouble, whatever it may be. Seems to dread every phone call and seems paranoid. Somebody, if his cell phone rings, he looks at it, ah. Uh, it's almost like he dreads every time the phone rings. And then 
If your preacher don't take vacations, that's a sure sign that he's headed for trouble. Because you've got to have a time to unwind. I was out of my pulpit for three months. Three solid months. And you know what? It took nearly one solid month for me to come out from under the fog of all the pressure I was under just from the daily grind of all the people's needs and all the sermon preparation. Guys, can you imagine what it's like to have to do sermon preparation for, for three services a week? You know what? You know, delivering a sermon just, they say it's kind of like having a baby. The only thing is, on Monday morning when you're a preacher, you find out you're pregnant all over again. <laughs> You've got to go at it again. And guys, I'm telling you what, your preachers are always under pressure in that area. So you make sure it's deacons. You make sure that preacher, you do whatever it takes in that step in the steps of being a, uh, in the servant role and making sure that you're serving the pastor in those areas that, uh, that is needed to make sure that he gets two weeks off in a row. A man, that, a preacher that takes one Sunday off is not, he's never out from under the pressure of those sermons. Okay? If he's preaching this Sunday and then he's leaving on vacation, he was all week long, he had to prepare for those sermons. And then the week that he's off, he's got to prepare for that sermon for the, for the following week. So he's never out, out from under the gun of the sermons. And there's nothing wrong with preachers love preaching. They love, you know, they like, but it's, it's pressure. There's a lot of pressure that goes with that. So if he doesn't take vacations, that's a sign that he can get in trouble. That means he's in trouble. But it's a man who won't take vacations, he'll wind up in trouble somewhere down the road emotionally because the strain, he, ne he needs that time off. And then when he seems to take everything personal, preacher, I want to talk to you about something. What now? Or they're always on my back. They're always fussing. They're always driving. That group's always, you know, it just everything becomes personal. But everything is not personal. Well, you know that and I know that. But once they start taking everything personal, there's a sign something's wrong. And then if a preacher, and I and I did this, man, back when I was under this under this fog, I've been in one church, I'd been there 22 years at that time when it when I started seeing I was, I was having some some trouble with it. When I'd walk in a room, if there's 200 people there, I'd look over and I I'd look, I divided from well, them that's my friend there. Wonder where those where my enemies are at, where those running their mouth and fussing and griping, where are they all at? I'd almost divide the room between those my friends and enemies. That's crazy. Do y'all realize how crazy that is? But it happens. Now, I know what I'm talking about now, boys. Whether you do or not, I, I know what I'm talking about. And you know what? If you guys will be keen and, 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 and watch, you can help see some of these some of these things and help preachers when they're when they're struggling. Yes, sir. Sure, Brother Randy. Be mindful of that. It's because on the high blood pressure part of that is double. Or triple. Yeah. Uh, it, it is. And so uh, just be mindful of that. Over 30 years of being in ministry and most of that being by vacation, over the last two years, three years, I just started taking two weeks of vacation. What was the economics of it? But yeah. uh, as a pastor, if you don't, you'll wind up part of that statistic. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's exactly I'm glad you brought that up because I deal with a lot of bivocational pastors. And, and some of these bivocational pastors, not only are they pastor church, but a lot of these guys 
have they have a high, high level jobs. You know, they may be superintendents at some center, city municipality or something like that, and they, they may be in charge of a waterworks department or a wastewater department or a, a road. I mean, and they've got a lot of responsibility in their, their secular job, and then to have that kind of thing in church too, it really you really do need to pay close attention to that. When a guy seems nervous even when his friends approach him, that's a sign. Uh-oh, pardon me. Less, less interested in doing fun things. When a man gets burnt out, he don't even care about doing fun things. He not he, all he wants to do is be alone, be left alone. Let me stay quiet. Let me. And you know, if you see if you see your preacher getting in that court, all he wants to do is be left alone. Don't let him be left alone. Encourage him a little bit. Call somebody like me, because you know what? They might be in a deep dark spot. And the thing is, the sad thing is, many times. You don't know how to get them out. You don't know what they're going through. That's why they call me because I can go talk to that guy and I can he can look at me and tell me, you don't know what I'm going through. And I said, I told a fellow this not too long ago, so uh, you didn't want to even prepare your, start preparing your sermons until Sunday morning at 5 o'clock on Sunday morning. Then as soon as service is over, you want to rush home and you want to stay in the bed all afternoon on Sunday afternoon. And then Monday morning, you don't want to go to the office. You look for an excuse. You're looking for every excuse there is for you to be in your automobile this week so you don't have to be around people. And I just started, when he got through, he said, maybe you do know what I'm, what I'm going through. And he said, but then he said, but you don't understand, man. He said, there's no way out. There's no way I can get out of this. And I can tell him, listen, I know where you are, and I know the way out. If you let me help you, I can get you out of here because I've been right there where you are. And if it wouldn't been for somebody to help me out, I'd have been still been there right there where you are. And you know what? They know I've been there. Then it's easy for me to help them. So they get less interested in doing things. And then when a preacher gets burnt out, he gets in trouble. Generally his wife gets to where she don't even want to go to church anymore. If you start seeing the pastor's wife less interested in the things of church, the things she used to be involved in, if she starts dropping every job that she had, it's one thing. Sometimes wives are overloaded. Pastor's wives are overloaded doing stuff because nobody else will. But when they start dumping everything and then they have absolutely nothing, you mark it down. Something's, something's wrong. So be, a, be attuned to that. So that you can you can help and you can serve and minister in that way. So that's kind of a pastor's trouble list. And I'm gonna give you that list. Like I said, everything I'm talking about, I'm gonna give it to you. So you and then if you've got a problem with a preacher, can y'all read that? <laughs> Go tell it. The number one key to handling conflict is to handle it before it gets started. And I always I share this story about uh, I had Two of my guys, one senior adult, one young young pastor, who were very close friends of mine in the last church I was in, and they came up to me and said, "Brother Brian, you've started a firestorm in the church." I said, "Over what? Over this last staff member? How you handled that?" I said, "You're kidding me." They said, "No." I said, "Is it the same old ones that's griping that always gripes about everything?" And they said, "No. There's a lot of other folks upset about it." I said, "Well, guys, I'm sorry. I tell you what I'll do. I'll handle it on Sunday morning." They looked at. What are you going to do, Brother Brian? They, want to make, they didn't want to make sure I wasn't going to drop the hammer on them. Amen? Yeah. So 
And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll have them Sunday morning. Sunday morning, when the service was over, I dismissed all of our guests. I told them our deacons are going to go out in the vestibule. They're going to greet all of you who will be leaving. Uh, we want you to invite you to come back. And I just and I said, but I'm going to ask all of our church folks to stay here this morning. I said, we're going to have a little family meeting. Well, they all thought I was going to resign. They didn't know why, but they, Brother Brian's going to resign today. He had never called a family meeting like this before. So when the deacons got through greeting all the people, they came back in. I told them, I said, folks, I understand I have created a firestorm among you over how I handled this staff member. And uh, I said, first of all, there's some reasons why I did what I did. The first of all is that I've been here for 22 plus years, and I know how this church votes. I know, I, I just, I know you. We've been, we've been a long time together. And I said, I just felt like that's what the church would do. But because I didn't ask you, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to tell you I'm sorry. I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I want to ask the entire church to forgive me because I never was never in my mind to create any disharmony or disunity in the church. And I want to ask you to accept my apology. And today, if my public apologies are not, not enough, when you go out the back today, if you would just come out, take me by the hand and say, Pastor Brown, when you call me this week, I want to talk to you. I said, that way I'll come give you a personal apology and I'll maybe share with you some things, maybe help you understand why I was, but I want you, I beg you to forgive me. And I said, what we're going to do on the next Wednesday night at our next business meeting, we're going to bring this subject up. We're going to give the chance, church a chance to vote on it. If we back, we we undo what I did, that'll be fine. I don't have to have my way. Whatever whatever y'all want to do, we'll do. So the next Wednesday night, business meeting, we had it. We went through, we come to that time of miscellaneous business. One of our deacons stood up and said, I know there were some issues about this. And he stated why uh, I did what I did because they, they knew. Then... Somebody stood up and said, well, you know what? I, I didn't really appreciate the fact that we didn't get a chance to talk about it. or like, Well, you know what? Everybody in the church don't need to be handling business affairs of the church. And so they shared their, you know what? Each one, they had about three pros and three cons. And even the, the cons were very gracious and kind. They were just looking for answers. And so they got that. We got through. We asked, was there any recommendations that would like to be made? One guy stood up and he said, yep, I'd like to recommend that we keep this thing just like the pastor had it, the way the decision he made, and we go on. They voted 100% to do just what I did without them. They voted to do that very thing. We didn't split the church. No more talk about it. Those who were upset, when I asked them, told them I was sorry, and I asked them to forgive me, and that we would work, we would deal with it. But they said, amen, that was it. You know what, the reason I tell you that is because the greatest thing those two men could have done was come tell me. The only one that could fix it was me. They come tell me, well, it's a beautiful thing. Matthew 18 works if people will work it. And then to be a demonstrator, that means to, to for a deacon needs to be a mentor. I'm almost done. How in the world will the next group of young men how are they ever going to want to be a deacon? Did you know the younger generation are no longer concerned with what deacons do? The millennials and the younger generation, they don't care about deacons' meetings. They don't care. They don't even know what most deacons do. And what they do know, they probably saw it in a in a church business meeting where they made all the recommendations and they were the, the power group of the church. And that's all they really know. What they, how is the next generation going to take your place? The only way the next generation is going to ever want to take your place as a deacon is through mentorship. You men, you ought to divide up all the young men in your church among the deacons. 
and you ought to start, and I don't say sign up. Everybody takes three names. That, I mean, that's what you want to do. Everybody take one name, two names, three names, to make sure every young man is going to be disciple, or mentored. But don't go out and, and put it on a bulletin board or in the bulletin that uh, Brother John's going to be mentoring uh, Joe, Jeff, and Jack. What you do is let the deacons choose these young men and then those who would work, they do it among themselves and then they just start on Sundays. Every time they see those guys, go shake their hand. Hey, man, I was thinking about you this week. Man, let me have a 10-second prayer with you. Man, how you doing? How was college this week? How's high school? Go to them every week. Make a special point every single week to go and encourage. And then maybe once every four or five months, maybe twice a year, man, take him out to lunch. Take a young guy. Maybe take a young man and his wife. Take them out to Sunday lunch after that. Just encourage them and talk to them. You know, talk to them about what it is to be a deacon. Don't try to recruit them, but I'm just talking about share with them why you do what you do. Because one of the greatest things ever happened to me was a builder that I worked with. All through, when I was 13 years old, all the way through high school, and then when I graduated high school, man, all the way, I, I worked for him. When I got ready to graduate high school, he came uh, one Wednesday night at church. Uh, I was coming out the back, and he, he was a very distinguished man, very wealthy, very uh, just a smooth, had, he had one of these radio-type boys, just smooth, you know. I came out, I was walking across the parking lot, and he came out of the back of the church, and I heard somebody say, Brian? I thought it was God, man. I turned around, <laughs> I turned around a little, I went, it's Brother Ralph. And I said, yeah, Brother Ralph, what can I do? He said, I want to talk to you. And I came back up there to him. He said, Brother Brian, he said, I know you're getting ready to go on vacation. I want to make sure you had your... So he reached his pocket, he pulled out a yellow manila envelope. He paid us in cash. He took out taxes and everything legal, but he just wrote it down on that manila envelope. And so he he wanted me to open it. I opened it, looked, and it had a full week's pay. I only worked three days that week in the construction business. Using construction, if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. So but he won so he gave that to me and he said, Brian, he said, Your mom and dad, y'all been here about six years, and he said, Man, we love your dad as our pastor. He said, You're getting ready to go to Florida on your senior trip. I'm gonna ask you. Don't do anything that may cost your daddy his job. I looked at him. That's good advice, Brother Ralph. God bless you. I'm just placating him now. Yeah. When I get to Florida, I'm going to do what I want to. I don't care what he said. Now, don't look at me super spiritual. You know the way y'all been too. And so he said, uh, all right. So I said, well, well, I'll see you, Brother Ralph. Well, we're shaking hands. Well, he didn't let go of my hand. He pulled me back to him. He said, now, Brian, I... I've got something else for you. He reaches in his pocket and he pulls out another yellow manila envelope. And this one's so fat, couldn't hardly keep the tape to keep it packed down. I thought, that thing is full of one dollar bills, you know. <laughs> they didn't have any big bills. They all had one. He wanted me to open it. I opened it up. Guys, there was a wad of one hundred dollar bills and then a choke of mule. And I saw how much money it was and he had for graduation present. I never had that much cash money in all my life. Man, I said, thank you, Brother Ralph. And I put it in my pocket. He said, Brian, I got something else I want to say to you. I'm thinking, pull up a chair, man. <laughs> you give me that kind of money, I'm going to hang with you, buddy. And uh, he said, Brian, he said, you know, he was nearly 80 years old in his late 70s. He said, Brian, I never was, me and my wife, Miss Lucille, never was able to have any children. And he said, uh, Brian, he said, these last several years you've been working with me. He said, every day we ride back and forth to work. He said, man, me getting to talk to you about subcontracting and architecture and financing and 
all of that kind of stuff. He said, man, I didn't have everybody ever teach that to. He said, you're the only one. And he said, Brian, he said, uh, you're the closest thing to a son I've ever had. And he said, Brian, if I had a son, I'd want him to be just like you. And then he pulled me up close and hugged me. I could feel his chest shake and he cried. And then he said, boy, I love you. He got this 80-year-old man sitting there crying with a 17-year-old boy and he said, I love you, buddy. I sure do. So I leaned back and he did too. And he said, Brian, I got one more thing. I said, what is it? He said, about this Florida trip. I said, come on. I'm thinking to myself, come on, man, get off this Florida trip. I I want to have a good time. He said these words. Brian, you're getting ready to go to Florida. I'm going to ask you, don't do anything. It would break this old man's heart. You know what? I didn't nearly react to what he said about mom and daddy like I did about when he said, don't break his heart. And I remember driving off that night and looking at him when I was driving past him. I remember for the first time in my life, I never thought about being a deacon or a preacher or anything else, but I remember seeing him in the the windshield of his vehicle when I drove past. I said, God, that's the kind of man I want to be. That's the kind of deacon I want to be. Lord, if you ever call me to be a deacon, I want to be. He has invested in me all of these years. He had mentored me. He had given. He had blessed me. He had prayed for me. He'd been another daddy to me. I never got over what that deacon did. Guys, you can have the very same effect on men if you'll mentor them. It takes time and it takes effort. God will bless you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you do and thank you for the opportunity of service. God, I pray that you would use these men to make a dynamic difference in their church. They'd be a blessing to their church, their families, and their pastor. Lord, most of all, they'd be beneficial to the kingdom work. God, I praise you and I thank you for all you do and what you will do, but we've asked in Christ's name.